So as I mentioned, why don't you uh, turn in your Bibles or however you access the Scriptures to Matthew 13. And we are going to look at verse 44, 45, and 46 today as we're continuing on the series about understanding God's kingdom. And I know it's, it's this big kind of concept and trying to focus it into a tangible way of understanding how God's kingdom works in our life. And that's what we've been doing the last few weeks. And so this morning we're going to talk about how you and I should respond to God's kingdom. Now again, quick little side note. God's kingdom is where Jesus rules and he reigns in our lives and in the world. That means you and I see his authority present. We see his power in terms of transforming people's lives, healing people, doing things that are beyond our human experience. When we see those things happen, we know that's God's authority. That's Jesus' authority. That's God's kingdom at work. And that means it's, God's kingdom is not defined by Sunday morning gathering. It's defined by God reaching into the lives of people and bringing transformation and reconciling them back to himself. So where all that activity is working, that's God's kingdom. I know it's a big concept. But then you and I have to answer some questions. Because as we'll look today, Jesus has been telling a series of stories or parables about the kingdom of God in order for us to understand the importance of God's kingdom and his work in our life. This morning we're going to talk about how we respond, or maybe we don't respond, to God's kingdom. When it comes to Jesus showing up in our life, him, him showing up in power and His authority, which requires our obedience, when He encounters us, you and I cannot be Switzerland. We can't be neutral. We can't be apathetic. We can't just find somewhere in the middle and say, okay, I'm just going to be okay right here. God requires a response for us, because if we don't respond, we are responding. We're responding to reject what he's doing. And so this morning we're going to look at, at a couple of stories because if you're anything like me, even if you follow Jesus for just a short period of time, it's very easy for you and I, even when God shows up in our life, to allow things to become so comfortable and familiar and easy that you and I don't think about what's going on around us. We stop seeing God's work in our life. If you were here last week, we talked about opening our eyes and looking around us to see where God's activity is and see where the kingdom of God is at work. And hopefully you did that. Did you see what God was doing this week in the lives of people? Big things, little things. But you and I have to constantly push ourselves out of that because things become so familiar. Church becomes familiar. Routine becomes familiar. Our spiritual walk becomes familiar. And then when it becomes familiar, what happens is this horrible thing. We fall asleep. We fall asleep in our, in our understanding of G, who Jesus is. We do that in all areas of our life. When, before we moved up to Oregon, it was about nine, nine years ago or so, we took a, a vacation the summer before, and even not knowing that we were going to relocate to Oregon. But just for years, Kim and I had wanted to take the kids up to the northwest so they, they could see it because she and I had both experienced a family vacation growing up. And so we were driving north, and, and, and I had not, in, in, since I was a little kid, had not gone north of Redding. It had been like since I was probably like 10 years old. And so when we got past Reading and we're heading up over into the Shasta area, you just start to see, if you've ever driven up there, you see trees everywhere, and they're actually green. I know we don't know what that looks like anymore, but they're green, and Shasta actually had water in it. I don't know if it still does. So but you just drive, and then you get into Oregon, and I remember as we were driving, we were just blown away. I mean, just how green everything is and how tall the trees were, how beautiful they were, and it was a good time. It was summer, and that means that it was mostly not raining in Oregon, so there was blue sky and green trees, and it's just gorgeous. And so you're just you're driving and you're just soaking it all in. And then after we finished that vacation, God moved our hearts, and we ended up moving up to Oregon to to go pastor a church there. And I remember the first couple of trips up there, 
and back, because we, we obviously still had deep roots in California, so we'd travel down here to see family and friends, and, and so there was about two to three times a year we were traveling, it's a, almost a thousand miles one way, that we're making this trek, and, and so the first few times when you're, you're driving back into the greenery, you're still kind of captured by it, you're like, oh, this is beautiful, and then like the second or third year, when you're like on your ninth or tenth trip, you kind of flip that switch, like, I don't really care about the trees, I just want to get home. And so then what happens, it's not about the journey, it's not about what you see, it's about how much time you can make up. Anybody? Dads, you really know what I'm talking about. And so it's not about the experience, you're just like, I just want to get through this, I just want to move forward. And, and I remember probably about, I don't know, about, I don't know, fifth or sixth year that we were making this trek, it was just about speed. It wasn't about the experience. It was just about, can I just get through this? I know this drive, I've been through it so many times. So we started driving at night. The kids, I could get them to sleep a little bit. And I remember one night we left Ventura driving, and we're like, we're going to do this. And so I don't even want to tell you what my speedometer reading was. Okay, I'm, I'm confessing it was just slightly over the speed limit. And so we did the trip in 14 hours. That's really fast. Usually it takes about 15 and a half to 16. We only made two stops, 1,000 miles, two stops. And I was like, so proud of myself. I made it. I didn't see any scenery because it was dark, but I made it. And I remember after that, it was just like, it just became this routine. Okay, I know, I know when this turnoff comes. I know we stop here. I know this is where we stop for Sonic because Kim loves it. And it's the so old routine all the way through. And I, be, I began to actually hate the drive. It just became long and monotonous. And it's just the same thing. And you get to the border, and there's the clouds welcoming you home to Oregon. You know, it's tragic. You're, you're hearing me confess my struggles with Oregon. But anyway, it's a beautiful place. But what happens in our walk with Jesus is the same thing happens over time. At first, it's like, wow, God has done something in my life. It's, it's profound. It's exciting. It's, it's new. It's fresh. And then it suddenly starts to turn over time so that it becomes familiar and old and routine and almost disconnected. That's the tragedy that some of us experience in our life, that this amazing thing that God's love is so deep and profound that he sent his son to establish his kingdom, to reach into our hearts through his death and his resurrection, to bring us back to God through his sacrifice for us. And how in the world does that get old, boring, and routine? But it does. And that's why in the, in the stories that we're going to see today, it is that reminder again that God's kingdom work in our life can never come to a place where it is not the most important thing in our life. It has to remain in that number one spot, otherwise we miss it. So with that understanding, let me read these three verses. So Jesus is going on, telling a couple more stories about the kingdom of God. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and he bought it. So those three verses, Jesus is using two stories to illustrate some really powerful things about his work in our life, about his kingdom, about him showing up in our, our lives and him becoming the one that is the most important in our life. And the first four things I want to touch on from those two stories are the responses that you and I should have to God's kingdom in our life. It's not the responses that we always have, but it's the ones that we should have. So look at verse 44 and 45. The first response you and I should have when God invades our soul, when we surrender our life to Jesus, when we see his kingdom advancing in our lives and in the lives of other people, 
the first response should be value. That we value what we're seeing. We see the worth in front of us. We see the worth inside of us. It says in 44 and 45, it says, The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like a treasure. And then he also says, it's like a pearl of great price or great value. He's using things that illustrate value and worth to people 2,000 years ago. And you and I can glean the same thing that Jesus is saying. The kingdom of God in you, the kingdom of God working around you, is like the highest value of a treasure or a pearl that you can find. And when you and I really encounter what he's doing in our life, there is that sense that our response should be nothing is more important. Nothing is, there's no higher priority. There's nothing that can be more valuable in our life. There's nothing that can drive us more. There's nothing that we don't focus more on than what God is doing in our life and what he's doing through us into the lives of other people. That has got to be the primary thing. See, when you and I st- take a step back and we think, you know what, if I was honest, I don't think it's really that valuable to me. You know, it should be, but I just don't feel that. I don't feel that. It just kind of becomes routine. And it's because we've lost the sense of what we first experienced when we came to know Jesus. Or when we saw his power show up in somebody else's life. Or when we saw something miraculous occur that we couldn't explain in our own human understanding. And we lose those things. And we have to be reminded of what God has already done. Reminded of the value of what we have and who Jesus is in his kingdom. When I was growing up, we used to go to Hume Lake all the time as a family vacation. And we would take different families with us that we were close with. And there was one family that we were closer than our church. And so they joined us for a week. And, and we were at, at Hume Lake. And for one, one, uh, one day, we decided to take both families just to walk around the, the lake. And if you've ever been to Hume Lake, it's a beautiful place. And so we're taking this walk. And we kind of came to this one lookout point over the lake. And we're standing on some rocks. And as we're standing there, I don't know how it happened, how it transpired. But the, the wife of the, the husband, the family that we were with somehow her watch slipped off her wrist and it slid down the rock into the water. And I remember we're standing there and, and, and I just looked and saw something sliding and I saw it hit the water and then we could see it kind of float down and it ended up about, I don't know, six, seven, maybe eight feet down. You could still make it out that it was down there. And I remember thinking, oh no, now, now what are we going to do? Because we're going to have to interrupt our walk. That's what I was thinking. And I remember as, as, the, as the watch hit the rock and slid in, their entire family gasped. They're like, oh! And then they were all silent, just stunned. I'm like, okay, it's a watch. And they're like staring at it. And they're like looking at each other like, what do we do now? And in my mind, we keep on walking and you buy another watch because it's not going to work anymore. Because from what I can tell, it wasn't very water resistant. That's what I'm thinking. And so suddenly we stopped. They said, well, we got to get the watch. I'm like, well, why do we have to get the watch? They said, it's, it's valuable to us. And so they start trying to figure out what they do. So they try to go find a stick that's like eight feet long and try to fish down in there and try to get it. So they do that, and it was really kind of interesting because it landed next to a rock and a dead fish. So when they poked at it, the dead fish just kind of disintegrated. So it was just, now it's cloudy and murky with fish guts. And I'm like, now we really got to get out of here. This is a waste of time. And so they tried that for like 10, 15 minutes, and it was kind of wedged under a rock now, and they couldn't get it. I'm like, can we move on already? And they said, no, we, we got to get the watch. And so none of us had any bathing suits on or anything. They, they were, we're wearing clothes, and so the husband goes, well, I'm going in. And he turns around and he just dives off the rock into the water with his clothes on and even his shoes on. It was like, dude, at least take your shoes off, you know? So he jumps into the water and he grabs the watch, comes up, and like their whole family's like <laughs> applauding. And I'm like, okay, can we move now? And then I said, does the watch work anymore? Like, it doesn't matter if it works or not. I'm like, what do you mean it doesn't matter? 
So you don't understand. He said, this has been in our family for years. This was handed down from generations. This, is, this, isn't, this isn't just a watch you go buy at the store. This is something that is important to our family. That's why we had to stop for 45 minutes to get it out of the water. See, that watch had no meaning to me because I didn't know the story behind it. But that watch had all the meaning in the world to that family because they knew what it meant to them. And sometimes you and I find ourselves on the outside looking in when it comes to God's kingdom going, well, why is that person living their life that way? And why, why are they making those kind of decisions? And why do they have to go be so extreme in their faith? Why can't they just be like all the other Christians? It's because they understand something about the kingdom that either you and I have yet to experience or we forgot. We've forgotten how valuable it is. These two men that Jesus is talking about found a treasure and a pearl that they, in their mind, thought there's nothing more valuable. So moving on to the second thing, the second response we should have to the kingdom is we should have this response of initiative. So again, these two stories, these parallel stories. So the man, it says in verse 44, he discovers Hidden in the field, he discovers the treasure. And then it talks about the pearl. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who was on the lookout to, for choice pearls. What is it? those two things? A man discovered something because he was looking for it. And a man found a pearl because he was on the lookout for it. See, they were searching for something that they didn't have yet. They were searching for something valuable that they were longing for. And they had yet to discover because of that. They, they were initiating something to find something of great value in their life. And that's important for you and I because sometimes we don't initiate. See, and the reason that, that especially when Jesus is using the story of, it just doesn't make sense to our mind probably 2,000 years removed from the actual story. But see, back in, in Palestine in the first century, it was not uncommon to find valuable things buried in a field. And the reason why is that because, you know, you don't have like the local bank that you go down to and, you know, you have all the security involved. And, and so when people had things of value, they would find ways to hide them and to keep them that what they thought was safe. And so some people would literally dig holes in the land that they own and they would bury deep. They would bury things that were valuable to them. And what would happen, though, if for some reason there was war or even persecution and they were scattered and they had, to, they had to flee from their land, they wouldn't start going and start digging up everything. They'd just have to run. And then that field would become abandoned and someone would come along and say, they'd think, I wonder if there's something of value left in this field. Anybody see those crazy guys with the headphones and the metal detectors at the beach? It's kind of like that. You know, certainly like, I was wondering, do you ever find anything? You know, maybe they find, found the person's watch that they lost at Hume Lake. It's a value, obviously. But you, it's that seeking after something. So this guy looks at the field and thinks, maybe there's something of value here. Enough to stop and to start digging to find something that's there. See, when it comes to the kingdom of God, you and I cannot be passive. When we actually start to see God's work in our life, there's something in us that should drive us and inspire us to go after and to grasp onto what God is doing. Not just wait. These guys didn't, he didn't wait. The guy didn't wait for a pearl to drop into his lap and the treasure to come out, somehow magically come out of the ground and come to him. They were searching. They were trying to find it because they knew it had great value. And see, when you and I think that something's valuable, truly valuable, it requires some kind of response and it does something in us. It makes us make decisions. It makes us take actions because we think there's something valuable there. It's kind of like the last six months. Anybody watched kind of the, the, the growing kind of popularity of, if you know on Twitter, Hidden Cash? Anybody heard of Hidden Cash on Twitter? 
Okay, you guys are like first service. You guys, okay, three people know about Twitter. Next week, we'll talk about Facebook. That's before Twitter. So Twitter, okay, you know, you send a tweet, and people read it, or you can respond back on a hashtag, and we won't explain all that, because then you're like, what? Little bird, never mind. We'll talk about the iPhone next week, too. That came out a few years ago. But the point being is, so this rich man gets this idea. He wants to be generous, and so he starts tweeting after he goes and he hides money in different places around California, Southern California, Northern California. Then he sends out pictures or hints on Twitter for people to know there's a treasure buried here. And at first, a few people got it, and then before you know it, the guy has 700,000 followers on Twitter. And when he sends out a tweet about a treasure hunt... Thousands of people show up at a beach, at a park, at a public place. They were interviewing people on the news. People are driving from Northern California. They're driving like 300, 400 miles to Southern California because they just might find a $100 bill buried in the sand or, or posted onto a tree or something. You've just wasted $100 in gas <laughs> to try to go find $100. Why? Because to them, it's valuable. And when something is valuable, it, it makes us do things. It makes us initiate action. And if the, the kingdom of God at work in us through Jesus is truly valuable to us, it will cause us to seek after him in a way that we don't seek after anything else. Because it's the most important. It's the most valuable thing. How hard are we pursuing God's kingdom in us and around us? How much are we looking for it and pursuing it and trying to find it and seeing what God is doing in our life and surrendering more and more of who we are to him? Then the third thing, the third response we should have is response of faith. So again, in these two parallel stories, in the first story about the treasure, it says the man sold everything that he owned and then the guy who found the pearl, what did he do? He sold everything he owned as well. What in the world? Are you kidding me? Sold everything they owned? Because they discovered what they were looking for, and nothing that they had was worth what they had found. And they had faith to believe what they were selling everything for was the greatest value, was the greatest worth. They believed that. And because of their belief, what did they do? It translated into decisions and actions that would cost them. And when we use the term faith, Sometimes we, we got to be careful because faith becomes about our brains. Faith becomes about what I believe cognitively, what I be, believe intellectually, what I believe informationally about Jesus. And so I have faith because I believe. But belief is not based on what we know. Belief is based on what we do. Because Jesus even said, the demons get who I am. Even the demons believe. But that doesn't change anything unless what? The belief works its way into us and transforms us so that we actually take action. You know, James chapter 2 is one of those chapters where you, gotta, you love reading it and you hate reading it because James just comes out and he says what? He says, if you don't have works, if you don't have deeds, if there's no evidence in your life, then your faith is dead. He says in verse 26 of that chapter, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead dead. That means if there's no evidence in action in our life that God's kingdom is valuable to us, then we really don't believe it. We really don't believe 
this is true because it's just something that we do. It's not something that we, that we actually are driven by and passionately live out in our lives. One of the ways that you and I know when we've kind of crossed that line where now we actually are living out something that's different than the rhythms of our culture is when people start to ask one question. They look at us and they ask, why? Why do you live the life that you live? Why do you make those kind of decisions? Why have you made those sacrifices in your life? Why did you decide to do that? Why don't you just live like everybody else? Why do you live the way that you do? And if you and I are living a life where nobody is ever asking us why, then you and I have to ask ourselves the question, why? Why is no one asking why about my life? Do I just look like every single other person in Simi Valley just going through the routines of life and never really living a different life? Why is that? And it's not to go back and say, well, I just got to do more and work more and work harder. It's to go back and say, what is it in me that has not surrendered to God's kingdom in my life so that that is evidence in my faith being lived out in words and actions and deeds and, and things that people can tangibly see? See, if you and I really let that sink in, and what that is, is that you and I have to allow every single day of our life, God's kingdom to take more and more territory in our lives. We have those moments of surrender, like, okay, Jesus, I give it all, I give it all, and we do in our greatest intentions, but then we have to live out our real lives every day, and that's where you and I have to come to grips with, am I giving up that? Am I releasing that territory? Is God getting hold of more of my life? Is God's kingdom extending more in my heart? Is he taking up more of my schedule? Is he taking up more of my mind and my brain cells? Is he really ultimately allowing his kingdom to one day fully encompass all of who I am? That's a process for some of us that we have to go through. But it's something where you have to take action. You can't, we can't just believe it and think about it. Some of you, uh, hear me, I'm not doing this, I share this for service, I'm not, I never will do this to try to toot our own horn, but this is just the journey that Kim and I have been through with Courtney and Jordan and, and our family. So, so we started fostering over like the last, I know, six months or so, we've been in the foster care system, working, we're starting to work with kids, primarily babies. Some of you for who foster, you're my heroes, and you've been doing it for years. Some of you have adopted, which is awesome. But for Kim and I, that was a long journey to get to that point. Because we had had conversations about fostering for a long time, but we always had the same dialogue. We just can't, we don't have time. We can't fit it into our schedule. Courtney and Jordan are young. We don't have enough room in our house. We, we can't possibly do this. The, the church's schedule is too demanding. And we had every excuse in the book. Until about six months ago, Kim and I were having this dialogue, and it was kind of in the midst of all kind of crazy stuff breaking loose. God pretty much said, you're going to foster and you're going to do it now. And that was one of those moments where it's like, yeah, fostering's a great thing for other people, right? For people who have time in their schedule, who people who, for other people who are probably more spiritual than me. But God said, no, it's time for you to actually do it. And I remember having to go through that. And when Kim and I, Kim, when my wife gets a hold of something, she just runs and I try to catch up to her. Any guys know your wives are like that? And so we're running on the fostering thing because we made up our mind. I'm like, wait for me. And just in honesty, as I'm going through the training, I'm thinking, this would be a really cool thing. You know, have babies in your house and show that you care for the orphan. And honestly, that's what I was thinking at first. And then we started going through it. I started realizing, this is going to hurt. This is painful. 
And then when we got our first foster baby and it's 2.30 in the morning, John and Denise, Denise Looney know this really well right now. And the baby's crying and you can't get him to go to sleep. And I'm thinking, Courtney's 18, Jordan's 16. Oh, we were almost free. Almost. No offense, guys. I don't know where you're sitting, but they know that we love them. Seriously, I've had people say that to me. What are you thinking? They're like a few years of getting out of the house. Why are you going to bring a baby back in and start thinking about doing this again? That's a funny thing, too. When people, when you start fostering, they come up to you. Those of you who walk up to you and say, wow, I really admire you. I've always wanted to do that. And your response as a foster parent should say, then why don't you? Because that's where I was. But I know the decision for Kim and I where was one of those moments where it was like, okay, God, you've gotten this part of my life. You've gotten this part of my heart. Am I going to open it more and let you take more territory? Or am I going to keep the door shut? Am I just going to keep living the comfortable life that I want to live? Because I don't want to be hassled by somebody else's problems. And God keeps pushing and keeps pushing and keeps pushing. Why? Because if I really believe this thing, and I really believe that James was serious when he said, true and right religion is to care for orphans and widows and not to be polluted by the world. If he was serious, if the Holy Spirit inspired that, then if I'm going to live out my faith, then I need to actually do that in my life. Not because I'm a pastor, because I want people to pat me on the back, but because the God of the universe looks at me and says, are you caring for those who I care deeply for? And if I say, yes, I believe that, then something in my life has to demonstrate that, not just my mouth, but the actions of my life. And then, before we move on to some other things, the final response that we should have to the kingdom is sacrifice. So again, reading in the story, you see that they sold everything. Both the man who found the treasure and the man who found the pearl, they sold everything to get enough money to buy the treasure or buy the field so they could hold the treasure and to buy the pearl. Sold everything. Jesus didn't say, well, they sold everything. 10%, they sold 20%, they held back enough for themselves to survive. It says they sold everything. They lost sight of even their own, necessarily their own needs because they realized what they had was so valuable that they were willing to sacrifice everything because what they had in front of them was more important and more valuable than anything they've ever experienced before. And again, those those moments in our life where God invades us in such a way by His Spirit that we realize, wow, I've been so selfish that I need to surrender that because that is only getting in the way of what God wants to do in my life. I strongly encourage you, and if you're a part of New Hope for any amount of time, you're going to end up getting pushed to do this when you're ready. But if you have not yet in your life experienced a missions trip outside the United States... I strongly encourage you to do it. It will transform your faith. It'll transform your understanding of the gospel, of what church is supposed to look like, and what it means to be a Christian. Now, you've heard a lot about Haiti. If we were to pull all the 14 members of the Haiti team up here, they all tell you the same thing. Their faith is different now because they went. We went to help people, and we were the ones that were transformed in the process. Because you start to get exposed to things that you don't normally see in our context. For example, one of the areas that we went and visited one afternoon was a place called City Soleil. City Soleil is the seventh most dangerous place on the planet. It is a place that, even though there's a police station, a, a Haitian police station, on the outskirts of City Soleil, they, the police never, ever patrol City Soleil because it's controlled by gangs. And if you've ever drove, fl- flew into Port-au-Prince, when you look out the left side of the airplane when you're landing, that's City Soleil. 
So Greg Barshaw took us in there one day because Greg has been able to build relationship with Pastor Fuis with the gangs there. And because they've done food distribution and they've cared for the needs of the people, when they come in, they allowed them to come in. But when we came in, they said, no cell phones, no pictures, no nothing. Because they, they may take your phone, but also they don't want to be kind of your poster child for poverty. They don't want you to take pictures of them. And so when we drove in there, in fact, this area is so... Greg was telling us probably things you probably don't want to hear before you drive into an area. Just three weeks prior to us being there, the only government, somewhat government agency that will go in to City Soleil is the UN. The UN is there, and, and they will patrol every once in a while. And when they were in there three weeks ago, they got into a gun battle with the gangs, and guess who won? The gangs won. They pushed the UN out. That's how kind of the environment. So we go into that environment, and, and, and Greg was taking us to a couple different churches in this area. It's this packed area, and they estimate that I don't even know what the square mileage is, but it's like 300,000 people packed around this area, they say. It's just crazy how many people are in there. And so when we went in, one, one pastor in particular that we got to meet, we just got to meet him briefly, Greg was telling us his story. And I remember I was floored. So this is a guy who, he's Haitian, born and raised in Haiti, but not in City Soleil. But everybody in Haiti knows about Soleil. They know what it's like, and nobody wants to go there. Soleil is the place that you end up at you can never get out of. But he made a decision to move into Soleil to reach people, to care for them, so that they could hear the gospel and know Jesus. And when the church first started, they had a building that was kind of even still unfinished. And then when, we, got, when we, were, we toured it, they were starting to build the second story, which would be their sanctuary. And so Greg was telling us his story. And when, when he first started the church, this unfinished church was his home. He didn't have a house that he went home to. He didn't have an apartment. He didn't have even a shack. He had the church building, and it didn't have anything of like a parsonage or an apartment in it or anything. So he took a mattress and he shoved it up in the rafters on the first floor and every night that's where his bed was. That's every night he would sleep in the rafters on a mattress so he could be in Soleil, so he could reach people and he could love them because he knew that God wanted to do something in their lives. I remember when I saw that, I, I, I met the guy. He, he spoke Creole, I spoke English. I mean, we got to exchange a couple words through Greg, but that was it. And I remember after hearing his story, just being overwhelmed thinking, Wow. He gets it. He found the treasure. He found the pearl. And nothing else in this life was as valuable to him as that. That he would give up everything and move into what people would consider a hellhole. The seventh most dangerous place on the face of the earth. And that's where he chooses to go. Why? Because what God is doing in him and through him in the lives of people is more valuable than anything he could ever have. That's what God wants us to understand. That's what sacrifice looks like, is that we're willing, up to, willing to give up everything. Final three, th- three things I want to touch on. Those are responses we should have. Here's the challenge for us. Now 95% of us are feeling really guilty and thinking like, man, this is a really hard message to get through. Pastor John, would you hurry up? I want to go home and eat and watch football and whatever else on our mind. But I just want you to just to think from it because here's the good news. When, the, when we actually encounter the kingdom and we fully embrace Jesus and we allow his kingdom power to work in us and through us, it produces things in us that we can't produce on our own. And this is, this is the important part. So let me just highlight three of those things that you see coming out of this. So the first thing that God's kingdom will produce in you and I when we fully allow Jesus to invade our souls and to transform us and we get it is this beautiful thing called joy. 
that all of us long for, but very few of us ever attain. In the first story, and Jesus is talking about the man who found the treasure. He finds the treasure and he buries it. And then it says, in his excitement, in his joy, in his happiness, in his passion, he goes off and he sells everything that he has so he can go buy the field. Now, did he have a rule book that says, okay, when I find the treasure, I get really happy and excited and then I go and sell it? No. He responded in joy because he realized what he found. And it, in, in a moment, it transformed his soul. He was so excited about it. He had so much joy. He had joy in giving away or selling everything that he owned so he could buy it. That was joyful for him. For most of us, it's like, no, I want to hang on to it. And how many times in our life is that what we're seeking after? We're trying to attain happiness and joy and fulfillment and contentment. And we're trying to fill our lives with so many things. And Jesus says, no, there's only one thing. It's called my kingdom. It's my work in your life. And if you surrender all for that, you will find joy. Joy is something that we always try. Can you just think about those moments? You know, you know I spend a lot of time trying to be happy or pretending to be happy or trying to find ways to make ourselves happy and we never quite get there. But for all of us, there's those moments where we experience something maybe that we didn't even orchestrate, but our, our reaction to it is a deep sense of joy and happiness and fulfillment that is a reaction to. It's not manufactured. It's not something that we kind of make up. It's just this response because we, we've got what we were desiring to have, what we really, what is going to bring fulfillment to our lives. And, and I, can, I know in my life, obviously, other than surrendering my life to Jesus, that being the pinnacle, there's other moments in my life where I remember just that pure joy. One of those, and this is going to sound a little strange to you, but I grew up with three older sisters, never had a brother in our, in our family until my oldest sister started dating Larry Powers, who eventually became her husband, who became the big brother that I never had. And I remember when, when they first started dating, I was as excited as she was that she was dating him because he would come over to her house and we would play basketball, football, racquetball, baseball. I mean, we would play all sports and he was always there. And he was my brother and he was investing in my life. And, and I remember the, the ultimate point, kind of pinnacle of joy in their relationship was the night before they got married was the first night, I was 13 years old, in my life that I did not sleep for one second. I was so excited that my brother was going to be permanent now because he was going to marry my sister and he couldn't get away now because he was going to be, the deal was going to be done. I was going to have a permanent brother for the rest of my life. I couldn't sleep. I was so excited. I think I was more excited than my sister was to even marry him. I was so excited. And then I remember when Kim and I got married, there was another one of those moments where, for me, it started, you know, about 11 months before when she said yes. And I'm thinking, do you know what you just said yes to? Do you know who I really am? You're going to marry me? I was like, and it, was, it wasn't like, okay, I'm going to be really happy because Kim said yes. It's like, she said yes. Anybody ever experienced that? Guys, you better say yes if you're sitting next to your wife right now, okay? And then I remember when, when, I, we were, when Courtney and Jordan were born, but, but really kind of the... the, the just the pure joy came out when we found out that Kim was pregnant with Courtney. Because we had to try, because it took a while for, for, for Courtney to kind of come to the surface. And so every, every month, Kim was, she was taking pregnancy tests and, you know, she'd go into the bathroom and I'd pace outside the bathroom like, any news, any news, anything? She's like, no. Over and over again, you just get that disappointment. You're like, oh, is it ever going to happen? Are we going to have a child? And and then I remember one time, I'm waiting outside, and she's, you know, doing her thing and looking at the test. She's like, no, nope, line didn't show up. I'm like, oh, 
So she throws the test in the trash, and we walk around. We're getting busy. She goes back in the bathroom, and she looks in the trash, and the test is sitting there, and this line starts to emerge. She grabbed the test out of it. She goes, look, the line's there. I'm pregnant. I'm like, are you kidding me? We're like, we're excited. She's crying. I'm crying. We're all excited. She's waving around the stick that has her urine on it. That's what was happening. It's like, where did that come from? Inside. I didn't care what she was waving around. Her hand. We were going to have a baby. Something of great value in our life. For some of us, we can't remember the last time we experienced that kind of joy. And more importantly, we can't even remember when we experienced that because of God's kingdom work in our life. That the God of the universe loves us so deeply and profoundly that he sent his son for you, for me, to die so that we could be reunited with God. And that's what all of this human history is all about. Nothing else matters. And if that doesn't give us joy, then we need to take a step back and say, do I really understand it? Have I really embraced it? Do I really know it? And the second thing, that the kingdom will produce in our life is in verse 44, and that is a sense of appreciation or value, which we talked about earlier. It's something that we should respond with, appreciation or value. It's something that we will respond with if we really encounter the kingdom. So in verse 44, what happens when the man gets the treasure, he finds it in the field. What would you and I do? I found a treasure. Nobody knows. It's an abandoned field. I'm just going to take it. It's great value. I'm going to run with it. What did he do? It says that he hid it again. He buried it. He buried it because he knew it was going to require him to buy the field and therefore buy the rights to the treasure so that he could keep it, so that it would be his. And it would be his rightfully so. Because if he took it, he would have had to run the rest of his life trying to hang on to the treasure that he had stolen from somebody else. He so valued and so appreciated what he had in front of him that he took the proper steps to attain it in his life to actually rightfully own it. Because of the value and the appreciation for what he had, it changed the way that he lived his life. Think about that. How much time do we spend in gratitude and appreciation and value for what God has done in our life? You know, we talked about earlier in worship, when we think about what we used to be and where we used to live and what our lives used to look like and the ugliness, and then we fast forward to today and we see some kind of beauty coming out of that, how grateful are we for that? I mean, I... Every once in a while, I will take the the horrible journey back in some of the seasons of my life just to remember what it used to be like. And it's not to say that you and I are perfect today, but I, I better be different than I was yesterday if I'm following Jesus because he does make beautiful things in our lives. And the deep appreciation. Now, the challenge that we face in this is that you and I sometimes go from one extreme to the other, where we're appreciative in one moment, but then we flip the switch, and the opposite of value and appreciation is this horrible thing called entitlement. That we are somehow convinced that the world and people, and most importantly, God owes us something. That somehow we have done something in our life to somehow corner God to say, you owe me now. Maybe I've been really good all of my life and I've done these right things and because of that, you owe me this. You owe me fulfillment and happiness and, and wealth and prosperity and all those things. You owe me. Why? Because I jumped through the hoops or, or I've gone through enough difficulties in my life and, and, and you know how much. Can you at least give me a break? You owe me a good day. You owe me a good year. And when we get to that point, you and I can never appreciate what God has done in our lives or appreciate the fact that he's wanting to work in our life right now. Why? Because we think that he's obligated to do something. And when you and I live in that, you know what we do? We destroy this thing called grace. See, because grace is something that you and I cannot earn, 
It is something that God doesn't have to give us, but he chooses to. He doesn't owe us anything. God didn't owe us his son. He doesn't owe us salvation. He doesn't even owe us life. And if we start to understand if the kingdom truly invades my soul and I'm being transformed, you know what happens? I get up each day full of joy. Why? Because everything that I encounter today, good or bad, God is at work in. Therefore, I can have gratitude and appreciation for it. Because God didn't owe me today. God didn't owe me that when I got out of bed this morning that my lungs would still be functioning, that my heart would still be beating. He doesn't owe me another day of life. He's already given me everything. He's given me salvation. He's given me reconciliation back to God. He's given me eternal life. He's given me forgiveness. He's given me all these things, not because I deserve them or he, I, he owed me, because he wanted to. And if he's given me all that, then he doesn't owe me anything. So that if you and I live our life that way, I've caught myself going in the entitlement route Man, my life is miserable when I do that. When I think people or God owe me things, I am so disappointed in life. But when I realize everything that I have or I might get only comes as a blessing from God in my life, then I'm at peace and I'm, there's joy. Why? Because God didn't owe me that. That person didn't owe me that. Wow, what a blessing it is. And then I don't expect anything from anybody else. I don't even expect anything from God. That's what brings such great joy. And then finally... In a moment, I'm going to have us reflect, and then the worship team will join us again. We'll conclude with communion and a song at the end of the service here. The final thing that you and I need to come to grips with in terms of what the kingdom produces, it's the same thing we just talked about earlier. Not only should we respond with sacrifice, but it will produce sacrifice in our life. And this is the real difference. So you see these two stories. Guy finds a treasure, buries it, goes and sells everything to go buy the field. Guy looking out for the pearl finds just the right one, goes and sells everything so he can go and buy it. Sacrifice, giving up everything white, giving up everything for one thing. That's sacrifice because they wanted to have that. Who told them to do that? Now, I know this is a parable and it's not, it's not all encompassing, but, but who told them to go do that? Is that part of the rule book? If you find something valuable, then you have to go sell everything. And even if you don't want to, you have, no. That was, that was a response internally from them. Because they discovered something that when they looked at that, when the man looked at the treasure or the man saw the pearl and he looked at everything in his life, all of his possessions, all of his achievements and looked at that and thought, these don't even come close to comparing to this. Therefore, I will sacrifice all of this just for this. That's what it produced in them. And that's what Jesus wants us to understand that when you and I really encounter the kingdom, we don't live by guilt, shame, and being compelled to somehow do the right thing. We live by grace and conviction and passion to follow Jesus. There's a huge difference. This is the last kind of story I want to share because it, it, it's, it's two encounters that Jesus had with two men and the outcomes of those stories were opposite. But they both had to do with the same thing. Jesus talked a ton about money because, in fact, in the illustration, we're talking about money. This is, it's talking about what? A treasure and selling everything and about a pearl. We talk, we're talking about things of value. We're talking about money. And so Jesus has an encounter with two different men about, in a sense, money. One, the conversation never even talks about money. The other one is all about money. But the response of both these men is the response that you and I need to see. The first one is in Luke 18. You don't have to turn there. In Luke 18, Jesus encounters what we call him the rich young ruler. This was a guy who had power, he had money, and obviously had some kind of significance in society. 
So he gets this idea one day, because obviously you can tell from the story, status is pretty important to him. He goes to Jesus to justify himself. He wants to make himself look good. So he kind of is hoping that the conversation will go down a certain path, because he knows if it does, he's going to look really good. So he goes to Jesus and he says, what do I have to do to get eternal life? Really, what does he have to, do I have to do to get in the door? What, what is it? What's the, what's the secret handshake? What is it that I have to know? Tell me, and I, I want to do that. And so then Jesus goes down the path that he thought Jesus would go down, which is, well, basically, have you been a good person? Have you obeyed the law? And so Jesus starts throwing out different points of the law. And you could probably, if you were there, you and I could see it, you could probably see the smile start to grow on this guy's face. Like, yes, yeah, that's the way I wanted him to go. And every time Jesus is saying, he's like, yep, check, check, check. Because then he says to Jesus, ah, got it. Since I was a little boy, all that stuff, all the requirements, I got it every single time. And so he's thinking, man, this is going really well. People are watching me. Jesus is giving me the thumbs up. And then it turned. Because then Jesus looked at him and said, okay. He said, but you still lack one thing. He said, sell everything that you have and give the money to the poor. And what is the end of the story? It says the, the man walked away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus is saying, listen, there's, there's one thing in your life that will cost you everything. Now let's tell a different story. If you go to Luke chapter 19, there's another guy who actually, we actually know him by name. His name is Zacchaeus. The, the, the sad part of Zacchaeus' journey is that we have dumbed him down to a little short man that got in the sycamore tree that we sing a song about in Sunday school. And the point of Zacchaeus is not his height or the tree he climbed in, even though that's all we remember about him, right? The point of Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus is it was the same kind of encounter that he had with the rich young ruler. But we don't have all the dialogue. We just have the outcome. So Jesus shows up, and he sees Zacchaeus in the tree, and then Jesus walks over, and I'm telling you, can you just imagine what it would be like for Jesus to walk up to you today and say, hey, I want to come over to lunch at your house. Oh, my. Can you imagine how much panic we would have? Whoa, what did the house look like when I left this morning? What is my family going to say that's going to embarrass me? Right? All those kind of things. And so, so Zacchaeus obviously invites Jesus in. And then they have, we don't know the dialogue, but we know something, in, something happened to Zacchaeus because this is the crazy thing. Jesus is going over to have lunch or have dinner at a man's house who was a tax collector who was wealthy, and he was wealthy off the backs of his own people. He was dishonest, and he was wealthy. He was like the worst of the worst. He was a traitor. And money was the most important thing to the point where he was willing to stab his own people in the back to get more of it. So Jesus has this encounter with Zacchaeus. What's the outcome for Zacchaeus? Anybody remember? You don't have to turn there, but here's what happened. So he pretty much says, okay, half of everything I have, it's gone. I'm going to give it to the poor. And then he says this. He says, I will pay back four times what I've taken from people. That was a huge statement because the law only required giving back two times what you had taken or stolen from somebody else. He makes this announcement, four times what I have stolen, I will give back. Now, I'm pretty sure on this. I don't think I'm reading too much into the story. But I'm sure that Jesus didn't stand at Zacchaeus' house and say, listen, if you want eternal life, if you want salvation, then you need to give half of all you have to the poor, and then you need to give back four times what you stole. I don't think Jesus ever said those words. I think Zacchaeus came up with those on his own. It was the response to Jesus' encounter with him, a sinful, broken man that was rejected by his own people, that changed him so much that he said, I will give everything away because I found you. That's the encounter that's different. 
The reason why is because you and I, when we encounter the kingdom and the tragedy of what may happen in the next 20 minutes or so as you are on the road going somewhere else, going home, is that you walk away from this morning feeling only one emotion, and that is guilt. I'm not doing enough. I need to work harder. The rich young ruler walked away guilty. Zacchaeus walked away what? Happy. Why? Because he was giving it all away. He was happy. What was the difference between the two? One surrendered everything. The other held on to everything. In the next few moments, we're going to have communion together, and you're going to be able to go to the stations in the sanctuary, and you're going to be able to get the, the bread and the cup. These are symbols that remind us of what Jesus did on the cross for you and I, that he sacrificed his life, took, taking our sin and our failure and our brokenness and exchanging that for his righteousness and forgiveness so that we could be reunited, reconnected, reconciled back to God. We do that And it gives you and I the opportunity on an ongoing basis to come to a moment where we look inside of ourselves and we ask ourselves, what is the one thing? In fact, I'm going to ask you just to close your eyes right now as we head into this to close the service. Jesus would do what he was doing when he encountered the rich young ruler. He knew that it wasn't the law. It wasn't like, okay... He's failed in seven out of the ten commandments. That's not what Jesus was, was doing. He knew when he looked at that man that, that there was really one thing that was the key to everything in his life. It was that one thing that was always in competition with Jesus and his kingdom. It wasn't all a bunch of different things. It was one thing. And I know that that's true for us, that when you and I come to this moment of communion in a moment where we are allowed to to come once again to the cross to receive forgiveness as we offer our sin and confession to Jesus, that we can come and we can give up that one thing. The one thing that is costing us everything. And for you, I don't know what the one thing is, but I know it's this. It's the one thing that every time you feel the stirring of God in your heart of a place where you need to be more obedient, or something else that he's calling you to do, it's that one thing that starts to rise up in your life. It's the one thing that worries you, that concerns you, that dominates you, that distracts you, and you know that it's the one thing that is in competition with Jesus in your life, and it is the one thing that if it wins, it will cost you everything. Today, when we come to communion, I'm going to ask you that you, between you and the Lord, you would come, and as you take those elements, that you would surrender the one thing. You say, well, I I can't let it go. If I let it go, that means this will happen in my life, or this won't happen in my life. And if I let it go, I'll lose who I am. And there's all these things will come in. But Jesus is saying, you still lack one thing. And he's asking you to surrender it. It may be money, but it may be a relationship. It may be a pattern of sinful behavior. It may be our own comfort. It may be our career. It may be even our family. But it's always the thing that comes in competition with what Jesus wants to do in our lives. So, Lord Jesus, as we come to this moment to to seal the time that we've had together, Lord, as we come and we're reminded of what you did on the cross, pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us the courage like the man who sold everything to buy the field and the man who sold everything to buy the pearl, that we would be willing to give up everything and surrender in this moment the one thing that we know 
that you are calling us to surrender. Lord, I know by your spirit you're speaking to us. We know that you're here. And because of that, Lord, I pray that you would help us to respond in obedience, to let go of this, to allow you to take more territory in who we are, taking over more areas of our life and our heart as we surrender more and more to you. Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you that it allows us to be freed from those things that would cost us knowing you, experiencing you, following you in our lives. Would you come and you work in us? In your name, Jesus. Amen.